It is great that here at Foothill we continue to have more and more children and that what we're studying together is the coming of children. Uh, We first looked at the announcement of the birth of John. This week we begin to look at the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so it all fits within that theme of, of babies. And, uh, but as we have seen and shall see, the babies announced here in the pages of Scripture are significant in, in more ways than one. As we begin uh, looking at the Word of God together, let's bow in a word of prayer, asking for the Lord's help. Our Father, we humbly bow before you, recognizing that this is your holy inspired Word. We sit underneath it. We are submitted to it. And we recognize that it reveals your will to us. May you use your word this morning to conform our lives to your word. And may you increase our devotion and our heart for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the world has long been fascinated with Mary, the mother of our Lord. Uh, They've been drawn to, in one sense, her simplicity. She was, in many ways, such an average woman, just uh, a rural gal who was unsophisticated and unpretentious. They've been drawn to her innocence. She was young, unsuspecting and had a childlike faith. People through the ages have also been drawn to her joy and her contentment. She happily carried the holy child to term and and gave birth to him. And while there have been many through the centuries that have placed uh, too high of an importance on Mary, as we shall see, there are definitely commendable characteristics found in the mother of Jesus. But for all these commendable characteristics, the point of the passages that speak of Mary carrying the Messiah is not to highlight Mary. The point of those passages are to point us to the uniqueness of the son that she carried. And she is indeed privileged and most blessed among women, as the Bible says. But that is only because of the one in her womb was so great. We are going to see this interplay between Mary and the son that she carries, both this week and next, as we examine the announcement of the birth of God's son to a humble Galilean girl. So if you're not there already, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we will be reading from verse 26 through verse 38. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In this text, we will see four reasons the child born to Mary was unlike anyone else. And in seeing this, it should cause us to worship Jesus as the unique Savior that he is. We here are beginning to see the beginnings of the gospel story of Savior Jesus coming to man to rescue us. How does this rescue story begin? It begins with the announcement of an angel to woman Mary. And so we see Jesus' uniqueness, first of all, in the special messenger that was sent. The special messenger that was sent. And we see this in verses 26 through 28. The text here in verse 26 begins by linking it with the account that came just before. If you remember, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been looking at verses 5 through, we looked at verses 5 through 25, and we saw this account of an angel appearing to a priest named Zechariah who was serving in the temple. And the angel announced that his wife, Elizabeth, was going to bear a child. And this was miraculous because Elizabeth was of old age and was, the text tells us, was barren. She had had no children and was past the age of bearing children. And yet, in God's miraculous power, he was going to open her womb and give them a son whose name would be called John. John, who we would see to be called later John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, announcing that one was coming who was going to be the Savior of Israel. And that text ended in verse 
24 and 25 telling us that Elizabeth indeed did become pregnant. That the Lord began fulfilling his promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And she conceived. And so as we come to verse 26, and it tells us in the sixth month, we are uh, being told that in the, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is confirmed in uh, Later on in verse 36 as well, telling us that it's the, the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth. And at this point, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel is sent by God to a town of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Galilee composed the northern region of Israel. I have a map just to refresh your memory here. Uh, if you're, to get oriented in, the, in the, the land of Israel, you always can start with the water, okay? You've got the, the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea on the left. That's the big blue, okay? Uh, and then down the middle, you always have this uh, centering point, and that is the, the Salt Sea or Dead Sea at the bottom, the skinny Jordan River going up, and then the smaller body of water in the northern part of Israel, which is the Sea of Galilee. And... Uh, that is uh, kind of the orientation of Israel. Down by the south, next to the left of the Sea of Galilee. I don't have my laser today, otherwise I would be pointing, sorry. Um, but to, down by the, by the Salt Sea, to the left, you see Jerusalem. And that is in the region of Judea. If you go to the north, you'll see Samaria. And then you keep going, kind of on the left of the Sea of Galilee, you see the the designation Galilee around there. And that region up and around the Sea of Galilee was known as Galilee. And it was there that you can see in the middle of Galilee, they, this map shows Sephorus as one town, and right below it is Nazareth. And it lands right there in the middle of the region of Galilee. And again, I just want you to notice Nazareth in the north, Jerusalem in the south. Now, Nazareth, what we know from archaeological digs there at the town is that it was a small agricultural town. There's been discovered olive presses and other things relating to the, the cultivation of agriculture. And so when we read city in the text, do not think of a bustling metropolis uh, it's a generic term for meeting a, a, a town, a place of habitation where, where people lived together. And so by being told that this angel w went to Galilee, to a town of Nazareth, we've already been alerted to a major change of scenery from what came before. Remember that the previous account took place in Jerusalem. This is the social and political and religious center of the nation in Jerusalem. This is somewhat e equivalent to our New York or our Washington, D.C., in the sense that the, the hustle and bustle of the nation takes place in Jerusalem. And, as can often happen between city dwellers and country dwellers, there can grow a distancing and a difference and somewhat of a disdain from the sophisticated city dwellers for 
them rural folk out there. And somewhat of that had taken place in Israel at this time. Galilee was considered more the country folk. They had a dialect that was recognizable. We see in Matthew 28, 73. They, they spoke a little funny. They spoke a little different. And they could stand out when they visited the south. And remember that then if we parallel these two, these two announcements of birth, that the, the first one, well, the announcement of John the Baptist's birth took place not only in Jerusalem, but took place in the midst of the religious center of Jerusalem, in the temple, in the midst of religious ceremony. In other words, it communicated the, the huge significance and importance. And his, the text highlights John's parents, that they both came from priestly lines. And yet here, the announcement of Jesus' conception takes place in a quiet, unsuspecting village in the north. And so we see even this change, that the announcement of the Messiah comes in humble means. It's as one commentator put it, the great God of heaven sends the gift of salvation to humans in a serene, unadorned package of simplicity. There's no fanfare. There's no great circumstances surrounding this. Her neighbors probably didn't even know that this took place right next door. That's how quiet and unannounced this was. Whereas John's birth, Zechariah walked out of the temple mute. He couldn't speak, and therefore everyone there that day knew that something miraculous had taken place. We see that this announcement was made by the angel Gabriel. This is the same angel who spoke to Zechariah and appeared in the temple to him in verse 19. And the text explicitly says that he was sent from God. This highlights the heavenly origin of Gabriel and his divine mission. That he did not just show up of his own accord, but that God personally sent a messenger to Mary. He is a messenger under orders by the king of heaven. And he's tasked to go to a woman in Nazareth. Who is this woman? Well, we learn three things about her in verses 26 and 27. It says that, verse 26, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Nazareth, named, city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We first learn that she's a virgin. That's the first thing that it highlights about this woman, to a virgin betrothed to a man. And this is emphasized throughout this account, the virginity of Mary. She was a woman who was both unmarried and sexually pure. She had never had sexual relations with a man. Again, this is mentioned twice in verse 27 and is imperative that we not miss it. And we're going to discuss the ramifications of the virgin birth of Christ later on in the passage. But for now, we need to simply note that Mary 
the text makes an emphatic point that Mary was a virgin. The second point we learned about Mary is that she's betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Now, we already can realize that we need to understand how marriage was done in the first century among Jewish culture. Because as we know, even today, marriage ceremony and the way that people get married today can vary from culture to culture just on our planet today, much less rewind 2,000 years and go to Jewish culture and we're already in a, in a different time and place. Much less you read through the Bible and you just try to like look for how did people get married in the Bible and you're going to come up with a dozen different answers. So we need to understand what, how marriage was done here in the first century. Marriage in that time was almost always arranged, meaning that the father of the bride would often arrange for a man to take his daughter in marriage. This was normal. This was understood. Daughters were expecting this. They did not see that their right to choose a husband was trampled. They didn't know the concept of just choosing a husband. They respected and saw the beauty and grace of their loving father setting up a man for her to marry. Now, that obviously sounds strange to our modern ears, but we need to try to put ourselves in the mindset of the, these first century people. Now, we don't know how old Mary was. She, uh, the the youngest a Jewish woman could be married off uh, that we see is 12 years of age. Uh, so there was a good chance that Mary was then even a young teen, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that range. She was, had, had just been betrothed or given to Joseph. And Joseph very well could have been older. Uh, Often the man could have been older after he was established in his career, was able then to take a wife. And Matthew tells us about Joseph that he was a noble and righteous man, just as it's sometimes translated. Now betrothal and the process of getting married in the first century was a two-part process, okay? Two parts similar today where where. People are engaged and then they become married. But in the first century, that engagement part, or as we read here, betrothal, was more serious. Betrothal involved a formal witnessed agreement to marry and a financial exchange of a bride price. So it was there at the first betrothal step that a document would be signed, that a covenant would be made between the two families, that these two were going to be married. And at this point, at the, what we would call engagement, but the betrothal point, the woman legally belonged to the man and is referred to as his wife. This betrothal stage was as binding then as marriage is today. Okay, so to be betrothed means that your options are not still open. To be betrothed means you're locked in. There's no going back. And as Matthew 1 tells us, divorce was required in order to end betrothal. 
So we need to see the committed relationship that Mary and Joseph are in at this point. This isn't like, oh, that's okay, you're just engaged. It doesn't work like that. They essentially already tied the knot. Now, about a year later, they would formally, uh, uh, there would be a formal ceremony that would take place, and that is when the husband would take his wife home to, uh, and they would set up their home together and the marriage would be consummated. So when we find Mary and Joseph here, they are in that first stage of betrothal, not yet uh, consummated in the marriage ceremony, but legally bound together. Now Luke specifically mentions Joseph's lineage as being from the house of David. The house of David. And for those who have read the Bible from Genesis up to this point, we know that David is, is a significant character in biblical history. And this term, house of David, means the dynasty or the family of David, the, the lineage of David, being descended from David. And this term house, I believe, harkens back to 2 Samuel 7, which we will look at later. But it's there where David says that he wants to build a house for the Lord because he recognizes that the tabernacle, God's house, there, there had just been, God had been living in a tent, as it were. And David says, wait, this isn't right. I'm in a huge palace. And yet God, the place where his glory dwells, is simply a tent that's a carryover from the, the days of wandering through the wilderness. And so he has in his heart that he wants to build a, a permanent house for the, to worship the Lord. And, and God then, through the prophet Nathan, goes to uh, David and says, David, no, 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 you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And what he means is that he's going to build a, a dynasty, a legacy a lineage for David and promises that the Messiah would be one of David's descendants, that David's son would sit upon the throne forever. And so we read here that Joseph is of the house of David. We see our, our, our biblical uh, antenna should go up and go, oh, this is in the line of what was promised to David so long ago. This man is in that line. Now, some would say, what's the big deal that Joseph is of the house of David? Because Jesus wasn't Joseph's physical son. So, so big deal. But you see... Remember the, the position that they are betrothed, they're legally married, as it were. They're legally together. And so any son born to Mary during this time would legally be, uh, be considered Joseph's if he would accept responsibility to care for this child. And so therefore, Joseph is the legal father of Jesus. Now, Mary, too, could trace her lineage back through David, as we'll see later in the book. But for Luke's purposes here, he emphasized the Davidic line through Joseph. So we first learned that Mary is a virgin. We second learned that she's betrothed, committed to be married to Joseph. And thirdly, we learn here that 
This woman's name is Mary. As the end of verse 27 says, and the virgin's name was Mary. Mary means excellence. The name is the New Testament variation of the Old Testament name Miriam, who was Moses' sister. And as we read the page of the gospel, we realize that it is a common name. There's a few others named Mary in the gospels. One example would be Mary Magdalene that you may recognize, but there were other Marys as well. But among those named excellence, this one is the most excellent, or should we say the most privileged, as we will see. She's privileged because God specifically sent an angel from his presence to go and deliver a message to her. And let's look at what that angel said to her. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, the word translated, he came to her, means to enter and therefore indicates most likely that Mary was indoors, uh, going about her business in the house, and an angel went in and began to speak to her wherever she was. The angel opens up with a greeting to Mary, and here translated, greetings, which I think is a better translation than hail or rejoice, as some other translations have it. But it's a word of joyful introduction, meant to alleviate the fears, meant to put a smile on her face, meant to uh, make signal to Mary that this is a friendly interaction. Greetings. Gabriel then says to her, greetings, and look what he calls her. Oh, favored one. Oh, favored one. Now, this term, this uh, title here, translates one word in the Greek, and it speaks of the grace that has been bestowed to her. In other words, Gabriel calls her a woman who's been generously given much grace. And more importantly here, we need to realize that she's seen here as a recipient of grace, not a bestower of grace. Because this word in one sense could be translated, greetings, uh, one who is full of grace. But as you may know, the Roman Catholic Church has incorrectly twisted this to mean that Mary, being full of grace then dispenses grace to those who pray to her. And therefore, they advocate praying to her to receive grace. But let me say emphatically, that cannot be pulled from this passage. She is favored. She has been a recipient of grace. She has been given much grace. Not that she dispenses any sort of grace. Now, we don't have time to do a full refutation of the Roman Catholic doctrine of praying to Mary and to saints, but from this passage we should notice that it loudly proclaims Mary as a receiver, not a giver of that grace. But notice how special that title is, that she's received grace from the Lord, that she's been favored by God. 
The angel follows it up by saying, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Now, of course, the Lord is with his people all of the time. So uh, there's a sense in which he's with all of us, and he was with his people at all times and all ages. And so you could say, what's the big deal of saying the Lord is with you? He's with all his people. Well, I think a special mention by an angel saying that the Lord is with you communicates there's in a special way the presence of God is with you, Mary. It, it designates a special relationship and a, a special presence as we're going to see later on in the passage. God is promising to be with Mary now at the, at the point of this announcement and through all the ensuing events which the conversation here will unfold. And it's a beautiful promise. The Lord is with you. Isn't this the reassuring comfort for a believing soul? To know that the Lord, our God, is with us. And He is bestowing grace. Now, we need to remember, why is Luke telling us this? It's because he wants to communicate to his readers how special Jesus the Messiah was. He wants the readers of the first century and us today to be in awe when we see the miraculous events surrounding his birth. And he wants us to see how Jesus is superior even to John whose birth was announced just a few verses ago. Now you we could see a lot of similarities between these two announcements. An angel came to a parent and announced the coming of a child. But we're already signaled to the fact that this announcement is different. This announcement is superior to the announcement that went to John. Because this didn't just go to a couple who couldn't have kids. This is going to a virgin, a woman who's never known a man. This is the angel's first words even communicate a special relationship that the angel did not say to Zechariah. And so there is something unique that is going on here. And we see this angel has come to deliver an amazing message to Mary. But before we leave this special messenger, I want to encourage us because this word that's translated favored one here is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. And so let's flip over there just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 6. Ephesians chapter 1, in the midst of describing all the blessings that we have in Christ. And let's just pick up in uh, the very last words of verse 4, where it says, In love, then verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved being Christ, that we know from like the accounts of his baptism where God the Father from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In the beloved, you and I, Paul says, we have been blessed with what? With his glorious grace. Verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That word blessed here in the ESV, and I believe the NASB has freely bestowed, that word is that same word used in Luke chapter 1 to say that, that grace has been given to Mary, that Mary is favored. And so for all of us who believe in Jesus this morning, we have been given and blessed with the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We are favored in Christ. Now, there was something unique about the favoring of Mary and what God was doing through her, but, but we can see here that through Jesus, we too have the special favor of God. And we know that through the gospel, through what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection, that we no longer have the wrath of God poured out upon us, but we have the love of God and the grace of God given to us, not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything that we have earned. We have not earned this love or earned this grace, but we have been freely bestowed it. We have been blessed by God as he has given us this grace, grace in which he gives us something that we do not deserve. So believer, rejoice in the fact that in Christ you have grace this morning freely and generously poured out upon you because you are in the beloved. We can rejoice in that. And so we, as we read of Mary being favored and given grace, we can quietly thank God that he has poured out his grace upon us as well. Well, flipping back to Luke chapter 1, the first reason that we've seen for why Jesus is unlike any other is the special messenger sent to announce his arrival. But secondly, the second reason that we see in this text for the uniqueness of Jesus is his special destiny. His special destiny, beginning in verse 29. It says, But, Je but she, being Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The greeting that Gabriel gave to Mary, which was full of wonderful encouragements, troubled her, troubled Mary. Now, what's interesting is that the text doesn't say that she was troubled by the appearance of an angel, kind of like it said with Zechariah. He goes, whoa, there's an angel there. And he was just flat out scared out of his wits because there's an angel there. Mary, though, says, okay, there's an angel, but what did you say? <laughs> and she's, she's, she's troubled at the saying, trying to discern what sort of greeting it is. Get past the greeting. Do you realize that there's an angel in front of you, right? And so she's, she's puzzled. And there may be questions arising in her mind such as, why is an angel greeting me? Why am I favored? What did I do? But as we 
see, Gabriel comes back with a word of consolation to calm her fears, as he had done with Zechariah back in verse 13. He says, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He tells her she does not need to be afraid. She can stop fearing because there's nothing to be afraid of here. Because, and he reiterates to her that she has found favor with God. I think it is also sweet that the angel mentions her name. Again, showing the personalized nature of this message. This is not just a public service announcement. This is not just some generic announcement that he's supposed to repeat verbatim. But this is a personal message from a personal God through a personal messenger to Mary. And can you imagine hearing your name spoken by an angel? That's a, that's a special privilege. Do not fear, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Why does Mary not need to fear? Because she's favored of the Lord. God is pleased with her. God is on her side and is working on her behalf. She needs to simply let her heart rest in the fact that God is with her. And is this not a good reminder for us as well? That as the fears and anxieties of life rise up in our own hearts, that we simply need to remember, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, that we have been blessed in Christ. We are favored in the Lord. We have been shown His grace. And because we are in Christ, God is working all things together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. We can rest in that. So take heart, Christian, because God smiles on you in Christ. And you can rest in that every single morning as you wake up, every single day, and every single surprise that comes your way. We need not fear because we are favored of the Lord in Christ. Well, after reassuring Mary, he gives some shocking news in verse 31. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Behold, this is often used in the biblical text to signify something new or some twist or some new piece of drama. Remember, most uh, these, uh, these accounts were told audibly as they were recounted from person to person before they were written down and inscripturated. And those beholds would be used to kind of wake up the listener to realize that something new or some twist is going to come. And so the angel's talking to her, saying, Do not be afraid. You found favor with God. And behold, whoa, what? You will conceive and in your womb and bear a son. There's three beholds in this passage, as we're going to see, each of them signifying something that should stop us and stop Mary in her tracks. But here we see that the, Mar- that the angel tells Mary that she, being a virgin, is going to conceive and bear a son. The angel is no doubt adapting the words that we find in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophecy that the Messiah was going to be born of a virgin, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Some of that same verbiage is used by the angel here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son. Now, Luke does not mention this prophecy. He doesn't mention Isaiah's prophecy like Matthew does. And so it doesn't seem that one of Luke's goals is to explicitly show how this is a fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy, but no doubt he has it in mind, as any Bible scholar would know. And we as readers of the Bible can pick up on that language as well. Now this statement, this promise, is a complete miracle. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Now, this is outside the laws of nature. This is outside the way that that human beings have conceived and born children previously. And thus, it is a complete work of divine activity stepping into time and space to make this happen. Now, most most of the verbs in verses 31 through 33 and in verse 35 are future tense, which means that these events that the angel is speaking of are taking place in the future. There's some that have said, in fact, part of the early church said that it was here as the angel was speaking that Mary conceived. And I, I don't think that best aligns with the future tense of the verbs that are here. It's going to take place after this interaction, but as we'll see, Mary expects a fairly immediate fulfillment. In other words, uh, she doesn't just think it's going to happen someday in the by and by later on in her life. Because as, as many people have noted, Mary could, could read this and think that maybe God was going to fulfill this promise when she consummates her marriage with Joseph further on in the year. She'd go, oh, the Lord's going to give me a child when I actually, you know, my marriage is complete. But, no, she's going to have a child while she's still a virgin, before she has relations with Joseph. Now, Mary is also given the name of the child. It says, you shall name, his name shall be Jesus. You shall name him Jesus. Now, Matthew 1, verse 21, tells that that's the same name given to Joseph. And so Mary and Joseph, both in separate dreams or separate uh, appearances of the angel, were told to name the child Joseph, or sorry, name the child Jesus. This name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. The name of the covenant God of Israel that we see all through the Old Testament, Yahweh saves. Therefore, in we know that names were given to children in order to indicate the parental goals and wishes for the child. And so here, by God naming the son Jesus, we see that God's intentions for this child was to save humanity. Yahweh is going to save through this child. Now, Mary's mind has got to be racing at this point. I mean, when have you heard of any of your friends being unmarried virgin and conceiving of a child. It, it, it doesn't take place. In fact, it doesn't even enter the imagination because it, it's impossible. And yet here, she has been chosen to carry this child, this Messiah. And for her, as we will see later on in this chapter, as she 
praises the Lord through what is known as the Magnificat, and she is praising God. She is well-versed in biblical theology. She knows all that the Old Testament has said about the Messiah. And so she, no doubt, as she is told that, that she, being a virgin, will conceive and bear a son, her mind has got to flash back to that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. And she's realizing that she is the one to carry this Messiah. And this makes her the most privileged, most favored. You see, ever since Eve, in the garden, after mankind sinned, and God spoke to Eve and promised that one of her offspring was going to crush the head of the serpent, in one sense, women ever since then had been wondering who was going to be the woman who was going to be privileged to carry that one. Who was going to be the one to be able to bear the son who would finally set everything right. And Mary, this humble gal in the backcountry of Galilee, is told that she is going to be that privileged one to be able to do that. Mary here finds out that God has chosen her. But the angel goes on. He gives two further descriptions of this child after giving the name. And these descriptions spell out the destiny that's chosen for this child. What specifically is he coming to do? Look in verse 32. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The child will be great. The word is megas. And it's from this Greek word that we get our adjective or our, our prefix mega, right? Uh, mega church, megahertz. It comes from this Greek word megas that means great. And this is similar to what the angel had said to Zechariah that he said that, that John would be great before the Lord. But here it's just totally unqualified. It's just he will be great. And in that sense, I think there's a, a simple greatness. There is, uh, in other words, he will be the greatest one. He's simply going to be great. And one reason for that is then what he says, that the child will be called the Son of the Most High. Something that was not going to be true of John. Now we do read in chapter 1, verse 79, um, uh, 76 rather, that John will be called the prophet of the Most High. But here, Jesus, the promised child, is called the Son of the Most High. The Most High is a common name for God in the Old Testament that we see in Deuteronomy, in Psalms, in Daniel, and other places. And it speaks of His utmost position, His sovereignty and majesty, and therefore implies the worship and homage and submission that is due to God. And Jesus will be called the Son of this Most High One. Now this is essentially equivalent to Him being called the Son of God, and we'll see that language uh, picked up later on in the passage in verse 35. And this language of Son 
picks up not only the fact of relatedness to God, but it's tied into his role, Jesus' role, as the Davidic king, as we're going to see in the next few phrases. So this title, Son of the Most High, communicates that he's, he is uh, uh, in the line of David and that he is, a, uh, he is mirrored after and holds the same qualities as the Most High. This title communicates his divinity. This child is the Messiah, but he's more than the Messiah. He is a divine Messiah. You see, in Jewish thought, a son was a carbon copy of his father. And the phrase, the son of, was often used to refer to one who possessed his father's qualities, to essentially show equality with the father. For example, in Psalm 89, verse 22, we see son of wickedness, speaking to this idea of that son is, has the same qualities of wickedness. He essentially is a wicked person. And so for the son of the Most High, he's essentially the Most High, shares those qualities with the Most High. And so the son of the Most High has a special destiny, a special mission he's to carry out. And we see that in three statements that finish verse 32 and verse 33. First is that he will reign on David's throne. We see in verse 32. After calling him the Son of the Most High, he says, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Now this is the fulfillment of generations of expectation. As a promise that I had mentioned earlier made to David, that God was going to place a son upon the throne of David, people have been looking and wondering who that greater son of David would be. And so to understand the words of the angel here and the significant import of them, we need to see that this, what this promise specifically was. And so let's turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is an absolutely key passage for understanding your Old Testament and really understanding your Bible. This promise made to David, we call the Davidic covenant, which is simply made a covenant that God made to David. This was a covenant made roughly a thousand years earlier than the passage in Luke 1. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Again, using the background that I explained previously, that David wanted to build a new house for the Lord, and God says, no, I'm going to build, instead, I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to uh, build a, a, a genealogy for you, a, a, a family for you, a di- dynastic house. And he says this then in, uh, let's, let's pick up in uh, verse Let's go to 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And look then in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now in this passage, there's an interplay between as God is making promises to David and some of it is fulfilled in his immediate son in Solomon as Solomon ended up building the the permanent house, the permanent temple for the Lord. But the distant uh, fulfillment came from someone down the line. And as the passage that we see here in Luke chapter 1 is a fulfillment of this promise. That there was going to be a one from David who was going to sit upon the throne and was going to reign forever. God promises, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we see this promise reiterated. This is a promise that the people of Israel continued to hang on to and continued to remember. Just in relation to our promises for the Messiah, let's look in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. A verse that is going to be familiar to you because it's read at almost every Christmas and yet ties into this hope and this promise of one from David who would come and who would rule, who would be a king. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The promise that God was going to send one who was going to be a son of David kept the hopes of Israel alive. They knew that someone was coming who was going to fulfill this promise, who was going to be in the line of David. Now, there were many kings that came from David's line, as we read through the Old Testament. Many who sat upon the throne of of Judah and Israel, the two kingdoms that ended up splitting. But all of them proved to not be the great one that was promised. All of their reigns came to an end. None of them proved to have the character that was promised of this Davidic Messiah. And so therefore, Israel continued to wait. They waited for a king who would reign forever. They needed a king who would be righteous and who would work righteousness in the land. And here, in the words to Mary, and Mary in her house, she hears for the first time that God has finally sent one. That one. That promised one is coming, and Mary has the privilege of giving birth to her. 
And as we come back next week, we'll continue to look at this great promised one that was promised from thousands of years before and was now showing up on the scene to accomplish God's purposes and to set up a kingdom that would have no end. And let me just say that this promised one is the one who gives life to us today. This is where our hope is found as well, in this promised son of David, that we, being united to him by faith, can know life everlasting. And with the announcement of his arrival, we too can rejoice that God chose to send his son to Mary, that we might know life. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this wonderful promise, this wonderful hope that was given to Mary. And we thank you that this promise that was given to Mary 2,000 years ago marked the beginning of good news for us as well. That we too could be saved from our sin, that we could be cleansed from our guilt and our iniquity, and we could find life in the Son of the Most High. I pray that you would cause our faith to rise, our faith to grow, as we see this, the beauty and the majesty of this promised Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.